นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
uh, giving up selfishness. And I've been contemplating this uh, short teaching and I'd like if I made a focus on the last line of what Ajahn Chah was saying. He points out, he said, if we can be free from just this one thing, from selfishness, then we will be like the Buddha. If we can be free from just this one thing, selfishness, then we will be like the Buddha. So as we pick up this contemplation, I think from from the outset, of course, we need to uh, be clear that uh, the kind of selfishness that Ajahn Chah is uh, talking about being freed from that would make us like uh, the Buddha, it's, uh, it's much more than uh, merely mm, feeling generous towards charities and giving away things that we no longer have use for or making donations to charity. Uh, all these things have their place and uh, can be cultivated and have to be encouraged. The letting go of selfishness that would make us like the Buddha is something much more challenging than making donations to charity. And that's, uh, that's the letting go of all self-centred struggles. All the struggles that we have that are born out of our commitment to me and my way. This is the selfishness that uh, we need to be contemplating. This commitment to me and my way that gets us into trouble so often. Uh, this commitment to me and my way that makes uh, an otherwise rather wonderful possibility, the possibility of human existence and living in this world, uh, it makes it into an excruciating ordeal a lot of the time. And this commitment to me and my way really does trip us up. And uh, the Buddha uh, was uh, very mm, elaborate, very sophisticated in his analysis of the disorder, the dis-ease that is the identification with me and my way. And and so a lot of the Buddha's teachings are are about dealing with this dilemma, we feel like there's somebody here, definitely there's somebody here, there's a me and there's my desires, my wants, my hopes, my aspirations, my skills, my attainments, my abilities, my failures. It definitely feels like that. But So why does that have to be a problem? Well, it's uh, what we do with this me that creates the problem. It's not the actual self-structure that's the problem, and that's something else that we need to also be clear about as we uh, engage in this contemplation. Uh, Psychotherapists sometimes get a little uh, uh, unhappy with us Buddhists for talking about uh, non-self, or the anatta, and the impression that they have is that we're trying to do away with the self-structure. And of course it is quite possible if you pick up the Buddha's teachings on anatta, selflessness, if you pick them up in the wrong way, you you can 
create serious psychological disturbances and there can be serious consequences. And, and the Buddha did speak about this also. These teachings need to be handled very carefully, very mindfully. So we're not talking about getting rid of the self-structure. The sense of individuality is something that it takes us at least seven years to develop in the first place and and then another good number of years to mature into and, and then we spend the rest of our lives coming to terms with what we've developed. The problem with the self-structure, the problem with this ego structure that we often talk about, the problem with the sense of individuality is we we, we start believing this is all there is to us. We, we, we take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. We feel like this is all there is to existence, me and my way. And so we end up obsessed with ourselves, and obsessed with that, getting our, our way, whether it's getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want, or getting over the disappointment of having lost what we liked having. Mm-hmm. So all these struggles that we are all familiar with. It's not the self-structure. It's not the sense of being somebody that's a problem. It's the fact that we invest too much in it. And when we invest too much in it, we we get caught up in its activity. And the sense of self we experience ourselves to be, the sense of me, is it's it's a dynamic happening. Anybody who's done a little meditation will realize uh, there's all sorts of me's, the happy me, the sorry me, the proud me, the disappointed me, the hopeful me, the worried me. Uh, they come and go all the time. None of them are permanent. None of them, if we try to hang on to them, actually stay there. You can't, you can't stay angry forever. Sooner or later, we forget about it and get hungry. And then there's the hungry me. Yeah. Mm. And there's the happy me. And, uh, so this experience of me, this self-structure, mm. that gets us into so much trouble, uh, it's because it's not a stable thing in and of itself. It's a process. It's an it's a habitual activity of mind. The sense of me is, is a habit. Habitual activity that gets established over the years. And the problem with it is that we become identified as it. We always feel like we're moving to the next thing. We're always caught up in wanting more. Wanting to be successful. Wanting to be more contented. Mm-hmm. whilst all of these things are perfectly natural in and of themselves when we identify as them then in fact we are discontented wanting to be contented is the state of discontentment mm-hmm. wanting to be contented wanting is movement mm-hmm. it's not peaceful when we're, when we're caught up in wanting it's not peaceful it's discontented mm-hmm. And most of our conditioning, 
trains us to believe that we're going to feel contented when we get what we want. That's what most of the stories we're told from very early on in life tell us, that you will be contented, you will be happy when you get what you want. So we exercise that and we realise that to some degree it does make us feel sort of okay, but it's the sort of okay that comes with when when you scratch an itch, you know, if you've injured yourself and then the healing starts and that's a good thing that there's healing happening, but then it's really itchy. You really want to scratch it. But if you scratch it, well, then we get in the way of the healing. So we have to use our mental faculties to inhibit the desire to scratch. So, yeah, I really want to. But if I do, it's going to get in the way of healing. So we learn to not scratch. Or we don't learn. If we don't learn, well, that's really unfortunate. And, and on the mental level, regrettably, many of us don't learn. We don't learn because nobody taught us. And even if they did teach us, well, it's actually quite hard work. It's really quite hard work to let go of this momentum of always seeking contentment when we're caught up in discontentment, when we're caught up in wanting. Mm -hmm. So this me and my way causes us all sorts of difficulties and, and yet the world that we live in advertises it, promotes it. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps you've heard people talk about how I'm, I'm in a, a really good place right now. I'm, I'm doing just what I want to be doing. My life's... I'm, I'm really in a good state right now. My health's good. My relationship's good. I've got a good house, good job, good car. I'm really doing what I want to be doing. And... From a worldly perspective, from one perspective, that might sound like success. But from the perspective of those who are truly awake, and those that see clearly, they realize being identified as wanting means that you're in a state of perpetual discontentment and really regrettable. So, thankfully, we have the example and the teachings uh, from the Buddha and the great teachers that present an alternative. And we're really fortunate in this. You know, a lot of people, they never even suspect that there's an alternative to pursuing gratification of desire. Gratification of desire, momentary gratification of desire, is the well-being, that's the extent of well-being that many people are familiar with. Scratching an itch and getting momentary relief is it. Or maybe you can believe that when you die there's going to be a superior uh, level of gratification. But that's it. And that's the story, that's the only story that they have to believe in. Well, the Buddha, of course, also... Um, all the great teachers start out uh, familiar with that story but don't believe it. They start to suspect that it's a con and start to get interested in is there any other possibility? 
as an alternative. And their realization presents us with the alternative. And thank goodness for that. The realization of of, uh, those great beings presents us with the alternative of unconditioned well-being. There's conditioned well-being, the well-being that comes from getting what you want, but then these great beings realize the unconditioned well-being, that well-being that is already always there when identification with this self-structure is let go of. For those beings that are no longer caught up, identified as the movement of wanting, as the movement of desire, no longer caught up in me and my way, for those beings, there's a recognition of the self-existent sense of well-being. That contentment that's inherent to the heart that's already awake. So the presentation of this alternative, that there is such a thing as unconditioned contentment, unconditioned well-being, contrasts what we're all familiar with, it is the conditioned, the conditional well-being, the conditional contentment. So having we presented with this, uh, uh, the cautioning that being identified as this self-structure, which, which we refer to as selfishness, the pain of that is not an obligation. Being caught up in that is not an obligation. There is this, this other option of letting go and realizing that which is beyond that. But the Buddha did also point out, and as did Ajahn Chah, that there's a lot of really hard work involved in that. And so once again, having each other's company to support us on this journey is a really good fortune. To try and do this on our own, it makes it exceptionally hard work. So, you might be familiar with that image in the Dhammapada that the Buddha gave, verse 103, where he, he mentions that conquering uh, a thousand times a thousand men in battle is easier than releasing out of identification with the conditioned sense of self. It's misidentification with that which is inherently unsatisfactory. Mm. It's not easy to let go of. And Buddha is suggesting that conquering a thousand times a thousand men in battle is easier. Um, However, also, not we just, given the uh, understanding that there is an alternative and cautioned about how difficult it is, is also, thankfully, those around who have encouraged us that it's worthwhile, as difficult as really difficult as it can be to let go of the subtle sense of selfishness, it's really worthwhile. Sometimes, you know, it's just so so much easier just to put your feet up and do what you like. And and certainly skillful taking a rest and refreshing and relaxing is absolutely 
part of the journey. But the work, leaning into the grindstone, uh, can feel like it's going to cost us everything. And we do need to be prepared for that. In a conversation I had with uh, Lumpur Sumato uh, when he left uh, Britain and went back to live in Thailand uh, three or four years ago, he was um, sharing with me how the ordeal that he felt faced with when he was told by Ajahn Chah that he was going to stay here establish a monastery in this country that ordeal uh, and all the years that followed from being told that uh, often felt like it was just far too much not what he wanted absolutely not what he wanted and not what he was ready for but he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him is the best thing that ever happened to him, being put in this position of that he felt he wasn't ready for and he didn't want to do. Mm. Ajahn Chah thought he was ready for it and figured it was good for him. And uh, this is, I don't know how many years ago it was now, 30 years ago maybe, when uh, a group of the monks... uh, Western monks who had trained with him in Thailand found themselves all synchronistically in London. Some of them had been visiting America and Canada and visiting parents and were all here together. And uh, Ajahn Chah was here at the invitation of the English Sangha Trust and said, well, you can just stay here. I've looked after you long enough. You can earn your own living now. So the ordeal of uh, what was involved in setting up all these monasteries, uh, certainly for Ajahn Sumato, it was not not a picnic. But this is affirmed also. I'm sure many of you have read records by other teachings, the ordeals that they've been through. And and we do need to um, take this on board. to be cautious and to uh, give ourselves into the training with respect and with commitment. The training involved in learning to let go of selfishness is is a tried and tested path. uh, There are many pitfalls on this journey but thankfully there are many who have gone before us who can help us out, lend us a hand along the way, like Ajahn Sumato did for many years and Ajahn Chah before him. Personally, I I had a good friend who, I also a teacher, who was trained in the Rinzai Zen tradition uh, for 10 years in Japan, uh, Venerable Miyokyoni, very highly regarded uh, Zen nun and and she lived in this country for many years and set up two monasteries and whenever I got an opportunity I'd visit her and always benefited from her mentorship and uh, her encouragement and 
I likewise remember speaking with her about some of the difficulties involved. In fact, I think on this occasion I was I was discussing how some of the what I perceived as increased difficulties of of training in in a non Buddhist country. This was in the very early years and in England and was uh, having a little bit of a moan, I think, to her about the added difficulties and she just looked at me very sternly and she said, if it's the real thing you're doing, it feels like too much too soon. Um, This counsel from the wise elders is really worth taking to heart and taking to mind. Certainly I've appreciated over the years and many occasions where I, I found myself put in positions, situations that uh, long periods of, of feeling really challenged. You know, I think my first experience of being put in charge of running a monastery or starting a monastery even, I had only been a monk for about seven years and Ajahn Sumoto more or less just threw me out of Chithurst, just kind of, you know, like a, a mother bird just kicked me out of the nest and hoped that I would fly, I guess, and sent me off down to Devon. And I, um, I remember, yeah, many periods of feeling really intensely challenged. And In fact, just the other day I was reflecting on Personally, what it is that I, I can recognize as having been most beneficial in practice over the years. What has it helped me most over the years when I think about that? And immediately what came to my mind, believe it or not, was the extended periods of excruciating frustration and feeling forced to deal with them. Of course, you can always leave. If you decide not to do that, the other option is you've got to deal with them. Not just mild disappointment and not just, you know, for a few minutes, but long, drawn-out periods of excruciating frustration forces us to go deeper. Now, I don't want to talk about these things in a way that sounds flippant or casual because when you're in the midst of this you don't appreciate it as Abdullah Yokoni said it feels like too much too soon so it's it's appropriate that we prepare ourselves for this if we're really interested in being freed from selfishness this training involves Challenges that we probably can't even imagine. Certainly challenges that that will test us and take us to the edge. Maybe some of you have read in the transcribed, translated teachings of Ajahn Chah, there's a talk there called In the Dead of Night where Ajahn Chah relates facing his fears in a very intense way. Mm. For him, mm. probably not for most of us, but for him, it was fear of ghosts. Mm. You know, 
maybe we might even laugh at the thought of that. But given the culture that he grew up in, it was no laughing matter. But he had prepared himself, he had been through sufficient years of training to feel ready to turn around and really face these fears. He was feeling obstructed by something. What was it he was feeling obstructed by? So he was interested in this, interested in going beyond all obstructions and realizing that which is beyond the mere gratification of, of desire, realizing inherent well-being. So he went and stayed in a charnel ground in a forest, which for a Thai person is you know, quite a big deal. That's, that's the places where nobody goes unless they're taking a dead body to burn and deposit. So he set up camp in the charnel ground and set up practice of sitting and walking meditation and it wasn't long before, sure enough, these impressions of that which he was most terrified started haunting him. But he didn't turn away. And he details in that uh, really inspiring talk. We're very fortunate that he was willing to relate what he went through that night, the ordeal of initially facing his fear of ghosts, but... As he looked into it more deeply, more resolutely, he found out that it was actually his fear of death. It was a fear of death. But he didn't turn away from that either. Mm -hmm. He sat there through the whole night, not running from it, not fighting it, but facing it, meeting it, meeting himself in his most vulnerable, most challenged, most threatened place. And then he describes how in just the place where there was fear, there was fearlessness. And then the understanding, the uh, indescribable clarity and comprehension that came with that fearlessness. But in the process... He talks about the utter terror, the bone-breaking terror that he had to face. In one stage, finding himself leaning against the tree, soaking wet, drenched, just crying buckets of tears. This is the great Ajahn Chah. Of course, we like to think about our teachers as, as if they were born great. But our teachers weren't born great. They realized that which was truly great because they went through the ordeal and, and the ordeal involves this skillful training and the training will uh, sooner or later hopefully at the time when we're ready for it take us to the edge to just the place where we feel like we can't handle it now if we haven't pushed ourselves in our practice if we haven't been too caught up in conceit and arrogance and trying to imitate the Buddha and finding a Bodhi tree and sitting under it and making a determination, I'm not going to move from this place until my flesh and blood dries up and there's just bones and skin left. We can read the scriptures and be enamored of what 
is recorded there, but maybe we're not ready for that. Well, we can read about Ajahn Mun's uh, great attainments or Ajahn Chah's great ordeals and, and then um, rather uh, excessively, uh, energetically push ourselves into things we're not really ready for. But if we don't do that, if with a suitable dose of modesty and, and humility and patience and commitment, a, a willing surrender to the training, a willing surrender to meeting ourselves where we find ourselves, mm. then I would say we can trust that when we find ourselves in that place, that very place where we feel like it's too much too soon and we can't handle it, we can trust we will find a way of handling it. Mm. So we're not caught up in wanting we're not caught up in trying to become, but we're submitting ourselves to the training in terms of the training, not trying to bypass ourselves. That's what happens when we're caught up in wanting, when we're caught up in trying to become something special. We try to bypass ourselves. We don't like ourselves. We meet ourselves in our weakness and we try to get over ourselves or avoid ourselves or run from ourselves or fight ourselves. Mm. Hence the need for skillful, gradual, mm. wise training. Which means we get used to, we get used to the level of frustration. We get used to tolerating the intolerable. Quite a number of years ago, I was at the Buddhist Society Summer School and uh, if I remember correctly, I, I think it was there that I heard a talk by uh, Trevor Leggett. Some of you may have read some of his talks and uh, Trevor Leggett lived for many years in Japan and, and was uh, accredited the highest order of achievement in judo. And In his talk, uh, he was relating how uh, frustrated he became with his teacher, his judo teacher, during a period of his training, when he had learned a particular type of throw that meant that he was winning all these tournaments. He was winning all these tournaments all over the place and, and probably feeling fairly pleased with himself. But then his teacher told him, he said, you can't use that throw anymore. And being a committed student of his teacher, he honoured what his teacher said, but he didn't like it. He absolutely didn't like it because he wasn't winning tournaments anymore. There was that one throw that he could do that meant he was winning these tournaments. But then he related how he found that he could learn to do that same throw but from the other side. He realised he could only do that throw from the right side. Uh, but he learned how to do the same throw from the left side and he was allowed to do that because that's not the same throw. His teacher hadn't banned him from doing it with his left side. He just banned him from doing it from his right side. And then he realised, oh, that's what, that's what that was about. He could only do this throw from one side. It was only a matter of time before the opposition recognised what he was doing and would have beaten. Now he could do the throw from both sides and he really was unbeatable. 
But in the process, he experienced some significant frustration and disappointment and probably no small amount of humiliation. And that's what right training does to us, for us, sooner or later. It'll take us to the edge where we have to meet ourselves in our limitation. And what do we do at that point? We receive ourselves. And that's what we have to learn. That's, yeah. Initially, we just react. Usually, I don't like it. I don't want to put up with it. We distract ourselves. We try to run from it or we fight it. What we need to learn at that point of training is how to meet ourselves in our limitation and receive ourselves, fully receive ourselves. And in receiving ourselves, we free ourselves, we let ourselves go. Mm. So, meeting ourselves in our sense of limitation usually feels like too much too soon. Absolutely not what I was looking for at all. I was looking for insight and bliss. But look at where it's taken me. That experience of being at the edge of what we can handle is the very place we need to be before we can recognize what it is we're doing that's creating this me and my way. That's creating this experience of limitation. But the skill of standing there at that point and greeting ourselves, receiving ourselves until the magic of letting go happens, well, that's very mysterious and there's no book that's going to teach us how to do that. We can read about what other people did. We can talk to other people and hear what worked for them. But when we're at that point, we have to learn for ourselves. Now, presenting it all like this can sound very grand and perhaps a bit daunting. And to some degree, I... I think it, uh, it, it's supposed to because, as a Buddha said, conquering a thousand times a thousand men in battle is easier than letting go of this false sense of identity from the self. Mm. Mm. So it's called for. But we don't have to become a judo master or be like the Buddha and make such profound determinations or or wait till uh, some great master forces us into an utterly intolerable situation we can practice every day every day every day guaranteed if we're mindful we will encounter the force of me and my way and see how it's creating suffering for ourselves and sadly also probably for others. The secret is in being sufficiently mindful, sufficiently consistent in how we pay attention outwardly and inwardly. And then when we see ourselves about to engage in 
this force of me and my way, we stop and we remember. Or if we don't, well then when we get hurt, that's when we remember. Oops, caught up again. I recently realised that I have a problem with getting caught up in me and my way when I find heavy garden pots in the wrong place. And although I know I shouldn't lift them, I do. And then in the middle of the night I wake up with excruciating pain. I want to do that for. How many times do I have to go through this? But that's where we learn. It's, again, as the Buddha said, it's not through not seeing two things that we stay stuck in this cycle, not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So when we have such an experience, we reflect and think, okay, next time we're going to catch it sooner. Now, I can't stop the plant pots looking like they need to be moved because sometimes other people move them and then they're in my opinion is they're in the wrong place, they don't fit the shape of the garden or maybe the plants grow and they don't look right there anymore and they just need to be moved a little bit. And and I could wait for one of these strapping, diligent, generous anagarikas to come along and do it for me, but I want to do it now. <laughs> I want it to look right. So that's me and my way. What do we do with it? We meet it. We turn around and face it. We don't. We could indulge in it, but look what happens. Mm. We could pretend it's not happening, but then we don't learn. So we stop. This is wanting. This is wanting. No doubt about it. I don't like the way that plant pot looks there with that bamboo in it. I want it moved. This is wanting. So we stop. It doesn't matter if somebody else thinks you're an idiot. It doesn't matter. This is more important. And you say to yourself, perhaps under your breath, this is wanting. This, and really feel it, wanting. This is wanting. This is really, really in the body. Get there, standing, feeling the ground under your feet, feeling that frustration. This is wanting. This is wanting. This is wanting. Wanting, wanting. What happened to it? Where did it go? Actually, the wanting didn't go anywhere. What disappeared was the deluded belief that that disturbance, that discontentment, was caused by resisting our own heart's energy. Where does the desire come from? That's just, that's just, that's the heart energy. The fact that we don't understand it, the fact that we misunderstand it, the fact that we misperceive it, because we never had a proper education in the first place, means we've spent our whole life indulging or denying it. But if we stop indulging and denying, we turn around and face it, which includes sometimes facing our fears, wanting to get out of it, and wanting to get away from it, whatever wanting it is, yeah. wanting to get something, wanting to get rid of something, this is wanting, this is wanting, wanting, wanting. Mm. Now, 
How does that happen? Well, probably somebody could come up with an explanation of what happens there. It doesn't matter what the analysis of it is. What matters is that it happens, that we recognize for ourselves the contentment that comes when we stop fighting ourselves. But we meet ourselves, we receive ourselves, and we let go of ourselves. We free ourselves. Maybe it's not wanting to move a plant pot. Maybe it's like not wanting to ask for help. I don't want to have to appear weak. I want to feel like I'm still competent. I don't want. It's still wanting. Whatever it is. Or maybe on a more subtle level on on our minds, the, the wanting to be understood. Often in meditation, people come across uh, uh, the consequence of not having transited uh, stages of development in early life adequately, and there's things missing, there's structures that are not adequately in place. And uh, we didn't get sufficiently seen, sufficiently received, sufficiently affirmed when we were young little people. Well, it's understandable that we feel there's something missing. And, yeah. But now, as adults, we can do it ourselves. Yeah. Come across that in meditation. I want to be understood. Yeah. Maybe you catch yourself always having to win an argument, always having to be number one, one-upmanship, mm-hmm. which is pretty tedious. Yeah. We catch ourselves caught up in that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Remember as a meditation, you know, or in a quiet moment after we've just humiliated ourselves yet again, we stop and we reflect on it. I want to be understood. I want to be seen. I want to be seen. It doesn't matter whether you think you should or shouldn't be in a state. If it's real, we receive it. Wanting. This is wanting. This is wanting. It feels like this. Wanting. Wanting. Some Buddhists get busy trying to get rid of wanting because they think there's something wrong with wanting. There's nothing wrong with wanting. Wanting is just like fire. If you put all the fires out, certainly living in Northumberland is going to be difficult. We need fire to keep warm, to cook food. Wanting is just part of existence. But it's our relationship to wanting that is important. So the training takes us to the point where our relationship to wanting has to be transformed, or is transformed, hopefully. Where we meet ourselves, we learn to receive ourselves, we receive ourselves, we let ourselves go. And it doesn't have to be, as I said, grand gestures. It can be everyday small activities where we feel caught up or about to be caught up in me and my way. When we get caught up in me and my way, then we get caught up in desire, get caught up in movement, get caught up in discontentment. Yeah. And we can let go of this momentum of selfishness, get, let go of this momentum of me and my way. It doesn't have to give rise to this movement 
craving, of desire, of wanting. It doesn't have to disturb the peace. I noticed recently when I was thinking about how I used to travel regularly to to New Zealand. The excuse for going to New Zealand was to see my parents and to visit the monasteries there. But what I really liked about New Zealand was the beaches, beautiful New Zealand beaches. There's one particular beach that I discovered in the very north of the North Island called Rangiputa, just this stunningly beautiful beach. And if you you bang into a couple of seagulls, you think it's a busy day. It's, It's just so spacious and quiet and beautiful and the, the water is unlittered and you know, such a lovely place to be alone on that beach. And well, I noticed recently that, uh, with some delight actually, that I could remember the impression of being alone on a beautiful New Zealand beach and enjoy that impression and leave it at that. Let it be just that much. What I was used to is that as soon as I'd start thinking about the beautiful beaches in New Zealand and being alone on them, I'd I'd want to go there. Craving arises, disturbance arises. When we learn to meet ourselves and receive ourselves and let ourselves go, and through extrapolation we can see how that principle applies with all the senses. You you see something, hear something, smell something, taste something, touch something, think something. If we're practicing properly, if our training is going in the right direction, then we can just let it be that way. It's just like that. Whether it's a beautiful mental impression or a not beautiful mental impression, there's a better chance we'd be able to let it be just so. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.